yes, 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 people. It's another week, and this is the 20th. Yes, check that. The 20th episode of Echoes from the Void. And we're gonna, you know what I mean? It is, the times have been busy, but we're still gonna bring you the heat for another week. Because we big pimp, pimp, baby. You know. Ha <laughs> ha. And I'm telling you, man, it's just been, whoo, it's been something, man, just running around, running around doing shit, it's like, um, you know, it's just been this film festival, man, you know what I mean, so it's just going through to just screening after screening, which is fun as hell, but it's, it's just kills you after a while, especially it's like, you know, you're sitting in a dark room for so long. Like, I come out of the screening, I just can't see shit. So I'm walking like this zombie, just bumping into people, and it and it's crazy. You know, it just takes a while to everything, like, come back and, you know, you decide to start working properly and everything, you know, which is just insane. And then you just find that light. Hurt, is, is hurt in the eyes, which, um, yes, yeah, funny, like, I, I, I worked in a cinema for a, for a while, and yeah, that was, because I was there all the time, I basically did, like, seven days, like, 14-hour shifts, just trying to make that money, you know what I mean, and so, the, the days that, when I was, like, forced to have a time off, that you'd go outside and you'd be like, ah, what's that bright thing in the sky? Yeah, and it's crazy. But you know, it like, I think you you notice when you're seeing a load of films like back to back and everything, like the things that you are missing a lot of. Yeah, especially then when you're going to like Q and A's and you're talking to directors and things like that. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of time they're using visual cues to help um, take a, a story forward. So, like, little winks, little shrugs, like the curl of a lip, you know, all of that stuff. Just miss it. Just, just don't see, like, anything like that. And then you have films that have like subtitles. Like I can't, I can't do foreign films. You know what I mean? Just subtitles aren't an option. Just, you know, it's just so difficult to see. Even when they're at their biggest. Now I've been to some films and you do, they do have really big subtitles, which is great. But you can't read like that for say two hours. Like, even, like, 20 minutes of that is just too much. It's just too much strain. But it's crazy frustrating that I, I went to see Life, I think it's Life Itself, the other day. And the last third of the film was just all in subtitles. Which is just insane. Because they don't say, like, there's nothing that says, oh, by the way, yeah, there will be subtitles in this film. So it's really frustrating when you get these stealth subtitles come up and um, yeah, you you have to kind of then 
step out of the film, like not leave the screen because it's too dark. See, that's not an option. But I mean, like step out consciously. You know what I mean? You're you're now out of the. You are sucked into the story, and now you're taken out because of, like, just this one little thing. You know, like adding all these subtitles, which is just, yeah, it's frustrating. But you know, it is what it is. But uh, you know, I think a fun thing is, it's just like sometimes there's been coming out of the screenings. And you get to um, you get to talk with other critics, but some people just don't want to talk. You know what I mean? It's a bit like don't approach me. But then other people, you know, I mean? they they they're, they're happy to talk, which is good because like there's films which are so crazy or touch on certain subjects, and you just want to discuss that with people. So it's nice sometimes to be able to like have an extended conversation or grab a coffee with someone. So that's all good, but yeah, you know, we're coming to the end, we're coming to the end, Sunday will be it, which is a shame, because this has been a fun few weeks, but, um, you know, it is what it is, but there's still a lot of other stuff happening around this, like, um, one of my good friends got married the other day, so we were just in Croydon, like celebrating, so that was really, that was fun as hell, like the craziest thing, like uh, her, they had her kid in the spot, so there was a, like a pram near the door, I didn't realise the kid was in the thing, but yeah, she wasn't making any noise, which is insane, because everyone's like singing and music playing, but yeah, this kid is like just quiet as hell, so that was funny, but the venue was dark, it was dark, so it's just trying to, like, find people, right, my, my friend, um, yeah, I saw my friend Heather when I walked in, and she's just like, Kevin, and I'm just like, you know, you hear your name, and you're looking, and you're looking, um, and, and yeah, it took a few goes to, them, to actually um, realise where it's coming from, and who the hell it is, you know, but yeah, that was a lot of fun, and um yeah like booker prize went to the booker prize so we're gonna touch on that um went there with my good friend is and so um yeah it's just like so yeah it's just like there's a lot of crazy things happening you know um and i was looking at the news and there's a big there's a a big thing about the death of roseanne barr in the new show, The Connors, and it's it's about the nature of how they killed her off. So look, if you don't want it to be spoiled, just fast forward thirty seconds. I'm gonna say it in three, two, one. All right. So they killed Roseanne off with an opioid overdose. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, it's it's a bit depressive, it's grim, you know, they could have done it another way. And yes, they definitely could have done it another way, or actually specified, because opioid is a broad term. But the, the crazy thing about it is, a lot of people are dying from opioids. But, 
they are but people still look at things like marijuana as being the more harmful of drugs when you know addiction to marijuana is less than addiction to opioids which is a fact you know and opioids you we're, we're talking about things like oxycodone like vicodin codeine you know they're opioids these are things that you can get on prescription from doctors and they will hand that shit out you know it's easy to get that those drugs and so that's the nuts thing about it that they're flippantly throwing something like that out there but they will not mention like weed which really baffles me really does baffle me you know people we can help you with pain relief it can help with seizures with dementia parkinson's these are all proven things but it's still um demonized although canada has now legalized it so that's interesting so now america has for the most part canada has so you kind of wonder like how long until other countries follow suit i mean the only thing blocking it really you can imagine would be big pharma but um yeah yeah it's just a funny it's just funny abc have um you know they they took offense to the tweet so they sacked her but yeah they'll throw opioids out there like it's nothing so yeah interesting very odd but i don't know that's tv for you man that's tv for you a crazy bit of news i've seen like this week is um the launch of a new smartphone uh so it's like an android smartphone and it's like being branded as a companion phone uh it is coming under the palm like brand you know i guess from like palm pilot back in the day but so what they're saying is that this this little handset syncs to your main phone and um like it's gonna be as small as a credit card it's got cameras on it which is like okay so having two cameras but there's no headphones obviously because it's that small or um wireless wireless um charging but they're saying it's like the device that you can take where your main phone can't and it's meant to be like the phone that gives you a break from your main phone but it doesn't make any sense because if you want a break from your main phone surely the idea would be not to have a phone at all you know what's the point of having this 
And the other thing is, like, now smartwatches are a thing. Why would you need this? Because, you know, whether you've got the Apple Watch or the Samsung Gear, you know, like, there's a, f a watch out there that will connect to your phone and let you take calls, check text messages, text messages even, um, get apps and all of that on your wrist. So, yeah, so what would be the point in them buying a tiny version of your phone? It's just, it's just some craziness. And it, like, you, there's no doubt there's going to be people that try and jump on this. You know what I mean? You're going to see all these fucking hipsters with their tiny ass phones trying to act cool. But I do not see this becoming a thing. You know what I mean? Like the Palm Pilot back in the day. I don't know, this is just going to die a death. Yeah, it, it makes no sense. I don't understand why the money has been wasted on trying to bring this to life but yeah it's launching launching in america going at 349 dollars and yeah so it's coming out for, on verizon in november so not not too long away but whoo crazy times people crazy times So I've just come back from um, the the readings for the Man Booker Prize at the South Bank Centre. Um, I think this is probably, whew, I don't know, the fourth, fifth year that I've been. And um, I have to say, this was a different one. This was a different one. Like I've, I've been, I think, the last two or three years with my friend Iz. And every year, we're like, oh, man, like, I'm not quite sure which one's going to win. But just as long as blah, 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 blah doesn't win, because that was not great. And um, that's the one that always wins. <laughs> you know, we're, we're always, there's always things that we just feel, mm, that just doesn't work for us. But this year... We enjoy, I think we basically enjoyed most of the books. Like, there wasn't anything that we thought, ugh, that's terrible. Um, and I think we agreed on four of them being ones that we would definitely check out. And the other two, kind of on the fence, but I think... Um, you know it's a bit of two minds that if if you know people we know read them and say that they they were enjoyable then we check them out but we didn't hate them it was just they didn't pop as much as the other ones but um the event itself it seemed different from the previous years as well they, they, they kind of moved the stage around a bit more, so it was, I feel it was easier to see what was going on. Um, 
and it really it seemed a lot funner as an event like not that previous years have been dull but this one really seemed bouncy if um you kind of understand what i mean i'm probably not but uh, i do tend to kind of go on don't i but uh yes yeah you know it, like the one thing that i you know it would be good if they could change like when um the the reader when the authors were being announced um for their their reading like the book their book would come up on the screen but i think if if the announcer could clearly state the name of their book that would be very helpful because i think he did say what the book was but it was within the confines of like some blurb he was saying so you could easily miss the name and sometimes it's not with some of these names they're kind of odd so you, you it it would be easy to miss it within the confines of a sentence because, you know, you'd think, oh, that's just part of just a general sentence rather than the name of the book. So if they, you know, if he said something like, um, oh, Rachel Kushner, whose book is The Mars Room from Jonathan Cape, publisher. You know, if, he, if, if that something like that was said and then it was just like, oh, and Rachel, she's been writing for blah, 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 blah. Then I feel that would be a lot easier. So, you know, that's only my, that's just my one slight um, drawback on the event. But yeah, other than that, it, it was, it was a lot of, um, it was a lot of fun. And so on the night, there were six authors. Um, so... I believe in the order in which they they read, we had Anna Burns, whose book was Milkman from Faber and Faber. Now, um, I'm going to read a little blurb from the um, Booker Prize website. And so it just says, Burns was born in Belfast and is the author of two novels, No Bones and Little Constructions. And of the noveler Mostly Hero. No Bones won the Winfield Hobby Memorial Prize and was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction. Burns lives in East Sussex, England. And um, The Milkman is narrated by an unnamed 18-year-old woman living in an unnamed town who finds herself at the centre of a local gossip when an older married man known to have paramilitary connections and a habit for grooming young girls start to, starts to pursue her. The backdrop of the action is the Irish Troubles but Burns is more interested in the psychological psychology of people living in tight-knit communities here than in writing historical fiction. Uh, like this, 
you know, it, it sounded fine and everything, but I wasn't um, wasn't too sure. This was one of the ones I wasn't sure about. And, yeah, I kind of thought that it may have benefited from someone else reading the excerpt of the book. Yeah, I just, it just I don't think uh, Anna could, she, I wouldn't say she's the best at, um, you know, reading out loud, as it were, you know. I don't know if it was just the voice or the projection, but yeah, I'm not quite sure it kind of worked on that level. But uh, then we had Essie Edugana, um, and her book was Washington Black from Serpent's Tale. Edugana was born in Calgary to Ghanaian parents in 1977. Her novel Half-Blood Blues won the Scotiabank Giller Prize and was shortlisted for Man Booker Prize, among other accolades. She lives in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, and the book uh, begins her epic tale with an account of her eponymous narrator's time as a field slave on a plantation in Barbados. But this is more steampunk sci-fi than traditional historical novel as Washington Black makes his escape in a fantastical flying machine he has helped in to invent and begins a voyage into freedom. Now I would say S.A. had a really good voice. So, yeah, it was so soothing, you know, um, and she really does kind of sell you on this book. So it is one that I would be um, keeping an eye out for. Next was Daisy Johnson, and her book is Everything Under from Jonathan Cape. Uh, Johnson was born in Devon in 1990. Her debut short story collection, Fen, was published in 2016, and Everything Under is her first novel. She is the winner of the Harper's Bazaar Short Story Prize, DAM Health Prize, and the Edge Hill Short Story Prize. She currently lives in Oxford. And um, at the heart of this structurally invented novel is Gretel, a lexicographer who thinks she has put her troubled childhood behind her until a phone call from a hospital brings back memories. This, this story of mother-daughter estrangement reworks the opidious myth at Gretel, as Gretel becomes obsessed with piecing together her past and working out what exactly happened to her mother. Um... I think this was the other one that, you know, wasn't quite sure on. Just seemed a bit depressing. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I'm sure if, uh, yeah, if, if I hear certain things, you know, you know I'd, I'd be happy to give it a look. 
Then we had Rachel Kushner, her book The Mars Room, also from Jonathan Cape. Uh, Kushner was born in the United States in 1968. Her first two novels, Tex Telex from Cuba and The Flamethrowers were both shortlisted for the National Book Award and her fiction has appeared in the New Yorker, Harper's and the Parish Review. She lives in Los Angeles. At the heart of the Mars Rooms is narrator Ronnie, a single mother working as a lap dancer at the Mars Room until she is imprisoned after killing her stalker. The brutal portrayal of life behind bars um, is tempered with moments of humour, but at its heart, this book is about the lack of choices American society presents to those living on the margins. Like Rachel, again, had a great reading voice, and she really, I feel like, sold you on the temperament of this book so it, it was definitely something that yeah i i marked down like yeah this is something that um i would definitely check out then we had richard powers with the overstory from william heineman um powers was born in illinois in 1957 he is the author of 12 novels, including Orfeo, which was long listed for the Man Booker Prize in 2014, and has been a Pulitzer Prize and four-time National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. He lives in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. So the in the Overlook, the stories of trees and the people who fight to save the few remaining acres of America's virgin forest come together in a series of interlocking tales. The action takes place from Antebellum, New York at the late 20th century, timber wars of the Pacific Northwest and beyond. Revealing a world alongside our own. Vast, slow, resourceful, magnificently inventive and almost invisible to us. This was very intriguing. Like, um, Richard was very kind of soft-spoken, but very um, descriptive. So it was really interesting hearing about this book and like although it seemed like different in um in concept it really yeah just sounded like something that you wanted to pick up and read so um yeah this is this is an interesting one and finally we had Robin Robertson. You know, with a name like that, he could be a, a Marvel superhero, right? <laughs> and um, his book is The Long Take from Picador. And so it says, Robinson was born in Perthshire, Scotland in 1955, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. He has published five 
collections of poetry and has received a number of honours, including all three Ford Prizes for Poetry. His selected poems, Sailing the Forest, was published in 2014. He lives in London. Mixing verse and prose, and initially released on the publisher's poetry list, The Long Tales follows D-Day veteran Walker as he crosses America trying to piece his life together after the traumas of war. He observes a country that is beginning to come apart, where old certainties are being replaced by social and racial division, corruption and collapsing inner cities. Like, um, yeah, this, this one, you know, he, um, Robin had very, uh, a grand narration, you know, he really kind of projected, and, um, I feel that helped kind of bring this book to life, so, yeah, it, it sounded like another interesting tale, so, you know, out of, like, Robin's book, Richard, Rachel, and Essie's, it's hard, like, it's hard to pick which one would, um, actually win, I'm kind of thinking it might between, might be between Essie and Rachel's, but, um, yeah, who knows with these things? You know, I, I never, yeah, as, as I said, look, me and his never predict the correct winner. So, um, <laughs> I think it's all to see come Tuesday when they announce, um, yeah, who won the prize. So, um, yeah, when they've, um, when they've announced it, I will, uh, you know, I'll make sure to um, record the winner, and um, we'll uh, we'll see a bit later in the podcast. I was thinking a little bit about. Um, I have read the books, and then after hearing the readings, how, and after reading also some of the other books that everyone's written about how the language in these books seems so. As in, I don't think they could have been written in a different language, particularly um, in Richard's reading. There's something tree-like about the way it's written, um, and I wondered how you, you know how you get into the vocabulary of the trees or the vocabulary of the prison, or um, yeah. The the address that Patricia makes to the to the red cedar actually obeys a very long-standing traditional uh, form of address. Uh, so her what she's seeing and how she's communicating into the verbal has a long precedent that she's tapping into. And she mentions at one point um, that she's drawing on the traditions of this language where footprint and understanding are the same thing. And I, I had to turn to my interpreter while I was reading because it's just been so magnificent to see the signers and to see the, mm. the translations of these texts into another language. And, and that's what I was trying to do in my passage, to bring a language that doesn't get to be articulated into, an, into a, a, a target language, 
while still maintaining some vestige of the source. But but thanks to the to the signers too. It's just been amazing. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the language of prison? Well... How long did it take you to get to understand it? Did you feel outside of it? No, I mean, the, the book, in a way, I'm being contrary with Damien with both of it, my answers to question, but uh, in a way, the book is not about prison. I mean, prison factors into it, but I see it as being about contemporary reality. And... The main character in the book whose passage I read, I'm very close to, she's from my neighborhood. Um, she's from my street. Her friends are my friends, and her experiences are ones I know intimately. She's tougher than I am, in a way, and I was interested in a first-person voice that um, kind of pushed back on and refused sentimentality partly through formal syncopation. And some of that is set up in the way the paragraphs flow, um, particularly the first long chapter of the book. She'll start to recount something from her past that's fairly traumatic, and then she'll switch to her present reality, listening to this nut job who's sitting next to her on the bus speak. And in a way, I was thinking of this trick that Jean-Luc Godard uses in some of his films when a character is about to reveal something really profound, a bus goes by and lays <laughs> on its horn. Um, and there, there's, a, so for her and for me, it became a way of refusing to give in to more sentimentalizing or even kind of conventionalizing ways of deepening her narrative by going from one thing to another and then returning to that story later and somewhat out of the blue. So I was really interested in tone and the tone that I had developed for her voice wasn't about the tone prison because people aren't born there. They eventually go there and the book begins when she's beginning her journey there. Um, I've always been interested in voices and part of what I was thinking about in writing the book was the first person. It's traditionally a confessional tone and um, I revisited while I was working on it um, the Confessions of St. Augustine, which I kind of think of as like the alpha, not in terms of the alpha male, uh, which I don't point to Richard as the alpha male, but he <laughs> referred to an alpha male earlier, which I, which I liked because my mother's a scientist and that is a tough world for women, boy. But, um, but as, as a sort of the urtext, and then Rousseau's Confessions is this totally distorted and bizarre omega, where the confession is not a confession per se, but in many ways a repression per se. And the first person is a challenging voice, I think. And um, the prison, maybe just to answer finally about that, is not a place that allows people to deeply and honestly and starkly ruminate about everything in their life. It doesn't create room for that. It does not encourage that kind of thinking. And so even though it's in this confessional form, it's not a confession. There's a great moment where she refutes that, that very idea, where she says, things you're not allowed to say, you know, I don't feel guilty about the years that I spent reading books, I don't feel guilty, I was still his victim, even though 
I killed him, and I, I really did love that moment. Okay, um, I'm going to thank you for your question, Daisy, and well done for having read all the books. Uh, I, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to go to the audience now, where there are mics are roving. Um, please put your hand up if you'd like, and I might come to you. So you one there, and a person there. Um, um, I'll come to you first, I think. There you go. There's a microphone on its way. Well, actually, that's a person with a camera. Down, just just down, down the front, down here. Thank you. If you could run with a microphone like in The Price is Right, that would be really exciting. <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> just here, just here. Strikes in the dark. Yes. Um, thank you for a great discussion. Um, I wanted to ask um, S.A. Duji because you talked about the genesis of Washington Black um, a bit, but the, uh, the story goes to so many far-flung and surprising locations, physical locations. And I was wondering, once you knew where the novel started, if you'd already always envisioned it as a, what you could call an adventure story, or if you only decided to take it to these many different locations once uh, you start doing research about the, the science of the time period? Yeah, so it's exactly what you, the latter that you, that you said. It's, um, I'm somebody who writes in many, many drafts. It takes me a long time to feel my way through a story and to discover what it's actually about. Uh, so probably all of my novels have been like 10 to 12 drafts, like full drafts, and it, it takes several years. And um, it just seemed to me, I think early on, um, there was a point where Washington reached England and then he just stayed there. Uh, and it, it didn't seem quite right uh, for a book about a man who's really searching for his footing in the world and who's so uneasy in his skin. And so I realized that the book had to keep moving as he's continually searching for his, his place in the world. And he's, he's, uh, he's uneasy and uncomfortable everywhere, and he's shifting and moving, and it's because he's looking for a sense of belonging uh, and home that just isn't, um, you know, he's, he's not getting it. And so by the time we've reached the end of the novel, uh, we have a sense of him, uh, if not having discovered uh, his, his home, uh, at least beginning to question uh, the, the validity of the way he's been searching for it and if this has been the healthiest way uh, for him to be uh, um, you know, coming into a sense of himself. And, and so by the end, we don't, we don't know if he'll stop searching, but we have a sense that he, he probably will uh, return to London and settle down, and, and at least try that on. Thank you for your question. Um, a person here with their hand up, a few rows back. Thank you very much. Um, wonderful readings. Um, this is a question potentially for all six authors, um, but anyone could answer. I'm particularly keen to know what um, Anna Burns might say. Um, what do you think of the dust jacket and or audible version of your novel? Oh, Anna. There you go. Do you want I to read the back? Yeah. Oh. Um, I love the dust jacket. Uh, I had something a bit more conventional and my publisher told me her idea. I said, oh, it's got mine. Yes, we'll go with that. Um, and then she sent, you know, she sent it to me and I loved it. And I didn't know it was Belfast. 
because I've never seen that when I was in Belfast. Um, uh, I confess I haven't heard the audible. I'm sorry, I, don't, I can't see where you are. I couldn't pick out who asked the question. Okay, I see you now. Um, so I haven't heard the audible. Well, we, we know you love your spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard it, honestly. Um, actually, to make this bit a bit easier, does anybody, did anybody not like their jacket when they first saw it? Because that's, that's usually what happens. You usually get an email to you and you're like, oh, oh. You chose yours. Yeah. It's from the book. It's, it's a place in the book, isn't it? Yeah, it's Los Angeles. Uh, yeah. And uh, I adore it. And the audio is read brilliantly by Kerry Shale, so I recommend that. <laughs> Richard? I, I saw the first proposal for the American dust jacket and almost withdrew the book. I mean, it, it was a lovely thing. I mean, it was, it was stunning in its own right, but it was so, so sinister. I mean, it, it was one of these sort of uh, upwards shots of a very fog-enshrouded, uh, dense forest, and it looked like a, a trailer for a David Lynch film. And, uh, you know, while forests and, and the fear that people have for forests is part of the story, it certainly is not the central part of the book. No. Now, the, the difficulties once the author makes uh, objections to a professionally designed uh, dust jacket, you've really stepped over the line and you've really invaded someone else's turf. So the next one that came was even more sinister. More <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> to make me grateful to him. <laughs> after a long process, we arrived at, at an American cover. When I saw the UK cover, it was so different. I mean, it was, it was a profoundly different framing, and I, and I simply loved it. It was, it, it, there's a kind of joy to it. Uh, the American looks like an historical novel. It looks expansive, it looks epic. Uh, the, the UK looks exuberant and, and constantly reinventing and kaleidoscopic. And in, I, I just got lucky in both cases. Uh, but uh, the, the overall effect was an entirely different kind of frame. I have to say they're all very good-looking books as well, which is, which is quite an appealing thing. They've not been ugly to have on my desk. Um, I'll take a couple more questions. I think we'll be time for two, and I'm just looking up there because I don't want people at the back to feel neglected. Um, I can't quite... Yes, there you are. Somebody in white with glasses. There you go. That's not a very good description, was it? Oh, there we are. Hi. Um, I was just, well, a question for, for all uh, six of you guys, um, I was wondering if you could kind of summarise in just one or two sentences what would you kind of want a, a reader, the lesson that you'd want a reader to take away from your book after reading it? That's a, that's a really tough question, because they probably answer it differently on different days, I'm sure. Um, well, I've said what I think about them. Anna, do you want to, you can do it in any order if it occurs to you. In any order. Let's, Anna's like, let's just do it in any order. Shall we do that? Should we do it in any order, Anna? That would be, I think that's a really good idea. Let's just, in any order, start with Rachel. <laughs> if, yeah, you know. I hate to be a crank, but if the book could be reduced to a lesson that I could um, capitulate in one or two sentences, it would sort of render the entire book unnecessary. <laughs> I could just 
just write those two sentences. <laughs> and also, I guess as a writer, I don't, I'm not looking to teach or imprint. I think that learning and imprinting happens to readers. I know it happens to me as a reader, but when I'm writing, I'm not trying to impress something upon anybody else or drive home a point or idea. I'm so much deeper in myself and trying to form a rich dialogue with my own unconscious and with my understanding of the world and the mechanics of it and try to build a narrative. And out of that maybe comes a, a book that would result in its reader asking themselves questions that I might have asked myself while writing it, but lessons, not so much, I don't think. Okay, well, in that case, I think what we will do is leave it there. So please join me in thanking Anna, Essie, Daisy, Rachel, Richard, and Robin. Thank you all for being here. We're gonna sign this afterwards. Thank you very much. On the way home from the uh, Booker Prize, I, I bumped into some Seattle Seahawks fans because, you know, it was the uh, the London game for the NFL. Um, so I had a little chat to them. Sounds like they had a lot of fun. It was a good game. But it reminded me of the fact that um, Robert Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, talked... I think it was last year about the possibility of having a London franchise for the um for the NFL because I think they there should be a new lot of um franchises coming in possibly I believe maybe next season I think because Vegas is getting a team, um, so yeah, I, I think there's the possibility of uh, one or two more teams coming through, and London, I think London and Mexico were were kind of thrown up. Now Mexico, hey, that makes sense, and that's an e I think that's an easy sell because you know it is closer to get to. Like London having a, their own team, I think I think it possibly is a bit too early still. Now, I mean, remember the days of watching NFL late, late night on Channel 4, you know, like uh, in the early 90s. And uh, yeah, having the the catch up game on Monday, like a fat catch up series on Thursday, then you'd have the full game on the Sunday. So yeah, it'd be a it was a lot of fun, man. And I think it was very popular. Then it kind of waned, just as the coverage went a bit weird. And so over the last few years, it's kind of it's coming back, but. We, you know, we don't want a London Monarch situation. Because when NFL Europe came around, hey, that first season, it was it was live, man. Everyone was on it. 
Um, and I think they were playing the games at Wembley. Then they moved the games from Wembley. I believe it was to Crystal Palace, maybe. Something. It was something like they, they moved the games. And I think the money, there was some financial issues with NFL Europe. So there was a distinct drop off with the second season. Then, like, the Monarchs folded and you just had the uh, the Scottish team. I think it was the Claymores. Yeah. So, you had the Claymores, Scottish Claymores. And um, I think if, if you brought a, a London franchise in now, you might have a similar thing to London Monarchs. Like the first season, I can imagine there would be a buzz about it. But then there might be some drop-off. So, I'd, I would kind of think that the way to go, possibly, have a new franchise that is housed between here and America. So, they will play... Like, at the moment, I think we get we get free games over here in London so possibly maybe have um, the, a new franchise commit to four games in London so you know for a few years you can have four games and if that's re going really well up it to five games and just ease it in like that so there's not you know we're, we crawl before we run you know what I mean so I, I think that's a a good thing. And possibly, you know, it might be a thing to take the games around the country as well. You know, like have have them in like Manchester, have them in um like Leeds, you know, some other big cities around the UK have games play at just so you, you can kind of gauge the climate around the country so what's the viewing around the country gonna be like but i think um have it yeah having a team over here it could be something but in the future but definitely showing more games having access to more games is benefiting and is just a good thing and especially, you know, if the games in general are just continuing to be good. This season has started well. So, yeah, I, I think it's one of those things. Let, let's see what happens. But let's not um, let's not run before we can walk, right? So this week, um, I watched the uh, soon-to-be-released film, The Super. This is from um, director Stephen Rich, producer um, Dick Wolf. It's starring uh, Val Kilmer, Patrick John Fluger, and Louisa Krause. Uh, it's from the movie Partnership. And runs for 98 minutes. So just over an hour and a half. Uh, so, you know, 
this I think this is pretty much a simple kind of concept of film really but it really kind of turns things on its head it seems and so um, the basic synopsis is a man becomes a superintendent of a large New York City apartment building where people mysteriously go missing and um, yeah I think that's it really in a gist I mean the film starts I would say in the usual horror thriller type way you know like um people think they they see something don't see something and then it all goes um so it's it starts like that and i think this is what um stephen actually i think it might be stefan rich rick does he is giving you breadcrumbs like feeding you a narrative so you're gonna believe in um the film to be a certain thing and i think you definitely do like you're given uh, a few creepy people to um, kind of pin the flag to on who could be behind the things that are going on. And I have to say, no one really is as creepy as Val Kilmer, who does put on a, a, a good... A, good performance of just being weird and out there I, I can't think of um I can't really think of the last really good Val Kilmer performance that um I remember seeing like to be honest it's been a good old while but I, I would say that this, um, yeah, I would say that I think this is up there with some of these, um, you know, good, good recent performances. Because he does help carry the film in, in the way that you believe, you believe what's in front of you. Because the way he moves and talks and just kind of really, I think he performs. Like, even when he's in a room and not saying anything, you're just like, ooh, oh, damn. Man, what, what was I, what's happening here? And, yeah, he, he does a fantastic job at doing that um like the other performances are good though you know um yeah i'd say patrick john fluger who plays phil lodge he's um yeah he's really good you know you i think he's a protective father that um yeah get gets uh 
you know, looking for these opportunities to help he help his family. And so, um, you kind of, uh, you believe in him as a character. And I have to say, it's like the ending, I didn't see that. Yeah, I, I you know, I will, I'll, I'll admit I did not see this film ending in the way it did. And I will say as well that I'm, I was very happy that the film ended in the way it did. You know, I think it would have been really easy to go the other route it would really have been easy to go the other route uh so i think it was it was it was it's nice that um rick didn't and left you the way the way he does i would say that um i did have um a concern with when um you find out some some of the things i wasn't quite sure if like the you know it's it, it made me wonder about the beginning because i think it does kind of call into question the beginning because of how it kind of rolls out so you're like, well, if if the nature of this is this, then how would that have been possible? That is the one kind of thing that I would say about what happened. You know, but um, I'm not quite sure if it really gets addressed. But, um... Yeah, I, I'd say other than that, this film, it builds tension well. Um, you know, as I said, look, it, it gives you plenty of options for the, you know, like for the protagonist. Um, and a few different swerves as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, it probably fulfills all the needs of of your horror of your horror thriller film i would say um yeah like you know horrors aren't really my thing but um you know this this seemed like uh, an adequate decent affair that i think um Probably if you're a fan of things like maybe um, Unfriended, um, yeah, something like that, something like Unfriended, um, possibly like The Gift, you know, I, I think The Loft like these films if you enjoyed those films 
I think this would definitely um, definitely be for you. And it is available for um, yeah, available for download on the twenty second of October. So uh, yeah, I, I would say um, yeah, keep an eye out for it through um, yeah the the general platforms: iTunes, Amazon, Google. Microsoft, Sky Store, Sony, all of those. I believe the recommended retail is $7.99 for standard and $9.99 for HD. So that is the Super and it's starring Val Kilmer. Cool. So I've um, been finally been able to get to some books. And so this week there's a couple of book, um couple that I've read recently. The first was Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams by Philip K. Dick, obviously. Uh and um I think this is based on the Channel 4 miniseries that came out earlier this year. And the synopsis is, though perhaps most famous as a novelist, Philip K. Dick wrote more than 100 short stories over the course of his career, each as mind-bending and genre-defining as his longer works. Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams collects 10 of the best in Autofac. Dick shows us one of the earliest examples and warnings in science fiction of self-replicating machines. Exhibit Peace and The Commuter featured Dick exploring one of his favourite themes, the shifting nature of reality and whether it is even possible to perceive the world as it truly exists. And The Hanging Stranger provides a thrilling dark political allegory as relevant today as it was when Dick wrote it at the height of the Cold War. Strange, funny and powerful, the stories in this collection highlight a master at work, encapsulating his boundless imagination and deep understanding of the human condition. Now, this was, like, I thought all the stories were interesting. Um, I don't think any really, like, jumped out at me as amazing, you know, that you, sometimes you put down that book and you want to talk to someone about what you've just read, you know, you're, you, like, there's so many books that I have passed on to friends, like, I bought them the book, I was like, yo, you must read this book, it's so damn good, you know, I, I didn't really get that sense from this, um, like, there were ones that I thought were more interesting than others, like, um, I think The Hanging Stranger was, was interesting, you know, it, it kind of followed that, um, 
that sense of trying to do the right thing, but who do you uh, who do you tell? You know who who can you pass these things on to? Because you know you you think you're telling someone, um, in you know who you can trust, and then it turns out that this person is ready to um ready to shop you you know i think um the hood i did like the hood just because it had that sense of um intrigue and um like there was intrigue manipulation and then uh you know, crushing oppression, that it was all, it was kind of all there, so I thought that was really interesting, and then I liked the way it ended, I, d- I think The Hood was probably my favourite out of all of them, yeah, just because, like, the way it unfolds, um, you know, you're not really expecting some of the things, and then when it happens, it, it it kind of reminded me of um. Oh gosh, the uh, the second June book. Um. Oh man, this is really uh, irritating. Um, it's not Children of June. Um. Oh my gosh, the second damn book was um right well um June Messiah Jesus Christ oh my memory is just so terrible at times but yes it reminded me of the end of June Messiah when everything because it's a very short book and you're thinking there's so much that's been set up and you're like well how is it going to unfold now? How are they going to resolve all these things? And it was just like that domino effect of like, boom, 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 boom. And it all unfolded. You're like, oh, man, that's so clever. And, um, yeah, the the end, it wasn't as intricate and smart. But it, it was one of those similar things where, you know, it all just suddenly unfolded really quickly. Oh, Right, no, that's good, nice. Um, yeah, so I I enjoyed the hood. Um, I don't know. It was like um, the Impossible Planet was okay, but it, I I thought it was a little bit wet. Like it, it just kind of ended. It was a bit like uh, anticlimactic. You know, you thought it could have been more than what it was um what like other ones that really kind of stood out um i don't know i, I yeah i think they were like the main ones oh like i think um father i think father thing was a good one because it was like cloning and body abduction you know those old tropes in in science fiction so um 
yeah, I, I thought that was that wasn't a bad story. Yeah, I kind of enjoyed that. And I think yeah, I think like they were the they were the main ones that I really enjoyed. Like the others were okay. But yeah, as I said, they didn't really jump out as much. And I thought it was interesting that some of the things kind of you'd have thought like more would have been made out of what was being done. Like it's it's that funny thing of like I remember I forget who said it, but there's a lot that happens in sci-fi where you know for years because you think like it it took Steve Jobs before he got like the iPhone. But so for years, phones were these really huge devices, and and that's how they like when you saw Buck Roger, you know it. People don't create things too different from what they used to and I, I thought that was something in the in the stories that yeah something more could have been created but it kind of stuck to like really kind of what we know but yeah it was it wasn't a bad little series so um yeah pretty decent pretty decent the second book that I did this this week was um, the first part of a trilogy called Age of Iron, and it's um yeah book one of the Iron Age trilogy by Angus Watson, and uh, so yeah the kind of the breakdown is legends aren't born they're forged. Doug Selskinner is a down-on-his-luck mercenary travelling south to join up with King Zadar's army, but he keeps rescuing the wrong people. First spring, a child he finds scavenging on the battlefield, and then Loa, one of Zadar's most fearsome warriors who's vowed revenge on the king for her sister's execution, now dugs on the wrong side of that thousands strong army he hoped to join and worse Zadar has bloodthirsty druid magic on his side all Doug has is his war hammer one rescued child and one unpredictable highly trained warrior with a lust for revenge that's going to get them all killed it's a glorious day to die so when I read this it was yeah I was kind of like oh this could be exciting but like I thought it started off well enough but as the story went on there seemed to be this like trend to paint people into a corner and then really just bring about like the most bizarre obscure way to rescue them you know something that wasn't logical to what was going on you know because it's just like well no they should die and then he'd be like oh but thingy finally found them he'd be like 
well, how would they have found them? That makes no sense. And 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 there was like that kind of stuff, and like some of the druid magic, the way it ended the book, you were just a bit like, okay, so you you so we're to believe that that was from that when if they had used one of the other characters it would have made more sense because they were introduced as that so it was kind of like this one character was introduced as having druidic powers and then that was basically it didn't didn't really feature there's one other time when he he he, they when um yeah they used them but that that was it so you're just like well what was the whole point of that oh is more gonna be revealed in book two oh yay well that's not really great because you need something to make people want to pick up book two that's the whole thing don't save everything back for book two when book one might be a bit meh so yeah you had these issues and the book was probably it wasn't a really long book but it did seem longer than what was really needed for the story that unfolds you know you just kind of think this didn't really have to be this long you know and um yeah that was kind of the disappointment for me with this like yes you know i think he wanted to tell this kind of semi-historical book trying to fill in the gaps around the iron age in britain that no one really knows about there's no you know there's no architectural evidence really that's around no books, no paintings, like nothing. So, you know, he's invented this stuff, but it's just a bit, it's just a bit flat. It's lacking it's that oomph, that soul, that spirit. You know, it didn't really light a fire. Which is a shame, because, you know, I was looking forward to getting into a new, you know, a new series. So, you know, I think that's me with this one. But, yeah, it, like, it wasn't, a, that's the thing, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't something that I just couldn't finish. It was just a bit lacking. But, uh, you know, we'll see what next week uh, has in store so that was um age of iron by angus watson okay so as promised earlier it's gonna let you know who won the man booker prize because now it's been announced and um <laughs> as i said look me and my friend is cannot pick a winner to save our lives and yet again, it has come to fruition. The winner was Anna Burns with her book, Milkman. Um, so yeah, you know, she she now walks away with a cool 50,000 prize money. 
which is pretty decent. She becomes the first author from Northern Ireland to win the award. Um, and, you know, the judges said that they felt her book was simply marvellous. Um, you know, highlighting like things like the distinctive and consistently realised voice of the funny, resilient, astute, plain-spoken first-person protagonist. Yeah, so, I mean, that's what is being said. It's Burns's... It's her fourth book. Um, and... Uh, yeah, you know, her first book, No Bones, that they, you know, that was published in 2001, so she's been in the game for a while. So um yeah, she must be um yeah, must be thrilled about it. But yeah, so that's another year of Booker Prize people. We'll see what um 2019 brings. And so, yeah, I think that's it for this week, man. We're gonna let's wind it up. You know, it, it's probably been—I um, don't know. I—I I, I think this show it, it's probably not the best episode we've had, but um, I'm tired as hell, man. You know what I mean? I have to say, I'm running on fumes right now. But you know, like it, this is a weekly podcast, so I ain't missing one just because. Everything is crazy at the moment. But I, yeah, you know, hopefully it's still been okay. But, you know, next week it will be tighter. It will be better. But as we um, roll out, I'm going to hit you with just some last last news. And it seems that Netflix has cancelled the um, Iron Fist series after two seasons so this is yeah it's the first marvel series to be cancelled by netflix but iron fist will appear in other shows um most likely daredevil most likely luke cage um so yeah we'll we'll see him around it's just one of those things and it means that marvel could bring the series back for their own streaming service which will be launching next year so um yeah who knows uh also like a big bit of news enrico colatoni will be returning to the relaunching of veronica mars um enrico plays keith mars veronica's dad uh he finch featured in all the tv series and the film from a few years back so uh, things are really shaping up, man. Things are really shaping up. So I'm looking forward to that. There's pro- yeah, there's just a few other characters who possibly could come back, um, which is Mac. I think Mac's the main one. So yeah, we'll see. But yeah, Veronica Mars, man, it's going to be good. And the last bit of big news, really, is that Hulu has handed out a full series order of 10 episodes for a musical drama series on the Wu-Tang Clan, because they ain't nothing to fuck with, yeah, it's called Wu-Tang, an American Saga, 
and it's going to deal with just the whole creation of the rap group. So it's going to be set in the 1990s New York. And yeah, it's just going to follow a, a group a group of guys and we'll see how they become, you know, the 40 million album selling rap group. And I believe it's going to take inspiration from Riz's novels, The Wu-Tang Manual and Tao of Wu. So, um, yeah, this is going to be interesting. All right, people. That's us for this week. We'll be back for episode 21 next Wednesday. You know, we'll be more on time. We'll be more energetic. But we'll still have the flavor. All right, people. Take it easy. Peace.